Hola, yo soy James Vito y este es el Talent Magnet Institute Podcast. As a business leader, you know attracting top talent is just the beginning. Real growth happens when you lead yourself and others well. Creating a company culture that attracts, nurtures, and retains the best of all things. We'll teach you how to make an impact through a holistic leadership approach. Reframing success in leadership. This is the Talent Magnet Institute podcast with your host, Mike Sippel Jr. It is an honor to introduce to the listeners today, James Biro, VP of Supply Chain of North America for Perfetti Van Mella USA, EVP of Prospanica, board member of St. Vincent de Paul and Superintendent's Advisory Council for Marymount Schools. Speaker, MC extraordinaire, volunteer, mentor, engaged father and husband, and a dear friend of mine. James, there isn't an interaction that I have with you that I do not feel that I've learned something and that I don't leave inspired. I believe the rest of the world who knows you would say the same. You have an inspirational personality and thank you for being a friend and that inspiration in my life. So James, I want to get into, I've got to know, what motivates you? What drives James Bureau? What what inspires you and pushes you to lead well like you do? So it's a series of things, and it's evolved from saying what I really get inspired by is driving winning teams. And what I have learned is I love change. And and the change that I love is is really probably called growth. So Whenever I can make an individual, a team, an organization grow and realize that they could do more than they thought when they started out, that is absolutely what motivates me. So I think you could wrap it up into, I love driving growth and especially when it's through people. James, can you share with us a little bit about your journey, including what brought you to the U.S., where you're from originally, what your family life was like coming up? and your, some of your work experiences as well. I, I love that you start there, Mike, because I think sometimes we think of who we are as leaders. Where did I go to school? What companies did we work at? What? And I really think that a lot of the foundation that makes you or breaks you as a leader starts at the very beginning, right? So, so let's start there. I was born and raised in Mexico City. My mom is Irish-American. My dad is Hungarian-Mexican. Um... And that is probably one of the first pillars that I would call out in my leadership journey. Understanding and and being excited by multiculturalism has been something that's been present all my life. Different languages were spoken in my house. I was raised in a different country. I grew up in a part of town where there were significant economic differences between people. So I grew up playing with kids that went to private school and Some of my best friends and their whole families lived in a one-room house. So I think that's one of the first pillars that made me understand and made me very interested in who people are, which obviously down the road is going to help you a lot as a leader. So I was raised in Mexico. I went to high school, college in Mexico. I was recruited by P&G, and that's where my professional career started. And after graduating as a chemical engineer, started with P&G, and this is where probably the second part comes in, right? And I start thinking of, in that journey, what made the P&G experience successful? And throughout my career, I've been told, you're a smart, analytical leader that has these really interesting people skills to balance it out with, right? And I go back again to the very beginning, and I was blessed. I had a home where encouragement and love and strong foundations were there the whole time. And I come from a dad who was a brainiac, right? He is all about analytics, learning, culture, and a mom that was all about sense of humor and people, right? And and that's where it really all comes from. Therein lies James Biro. (laughs) And I I swear, and therein lies James Biro, right? Um, So I started my career with P&G in engineering, very quickly started migrating toward, I love supervision and I love leading teams and I love, and I got along with people and I could talk to an operator on the line and a senior VP exactly the same, right? So, so P&G gave me the view of business engineering, opened up my eyes to, wow, there's a whole world 
out there. So we started nudging on, hey, we'd like we'd like to go somewhere else, right? I met my wife, Paola, uh, through work. So one of my best friends at work invited me to his wedding, uh, introduced me to his little sister, and 18 years, two countries, the four states, and uh, two kids later, uh, we're, we're still rocking it together. And that, that's obviously been one of the biggest blessings in my life. Um, as we were looking to say, hey, let's, let's look at moving out, out of Mexico City, I contacted a friend who contacted me with a recruiter who said, do you know Zealand, Michigan? I have no idea what you're talking about, right? And really what brought us to the United States when you ask a question that way was the, the sense of let's try something new and let's learn. And I think that's the third thing that I would call out in my journey as a leader is I have always loved to jump into things with the passion for we're going to figure it out when we jump in, right? And and I was brought up that way and it was, sure, let's go to the States and let's learn from it. And we were convinced that we were going to go back two, three years late. So landed up uh, making infant formula with me, Johnson uh, Nutrition in Michigan. Uh, took a couple of lateral moves that broadened my career and landed up with a corporate role down in Evansville, Indiana. Came to the Cincinnati area with Kellogg's. Um, really extraordinary experience with them. And it got to the point where they said, we love what you do. We want you to further what you do. Here's a couple of opportunities to go do regional supply chain in other parts of the world. But something had happened to our family, meanwhile, and it's we fell in love with the region. And we love uh, greater Cincinnati. And we said, no, you know what? It's it's not about the bigger job and the greater opportunity. It's about the things that we have found here and and the things that drive us here. And I think that's the last part in the journey. It's funny how you evolve in your life and how you start figuring out sometimes later, maybe than you could or should, what's really important in your career, right? And it's it's when you start Stop thinking about what's the next step and what's the next job. And it's more about how are we going to grow as a family and how are we going to grow as individuals here and how can we contribute? And you start doing some some really fun things. And that's how I connected with uh, Perfetti. And that's that's been a fantastic job. So it's, it's been a great journey. And I've been blessed with a bunch of people that have given me probably way more opportunities than, than they should have at times, but learned a lot and, and grown a lot. So James, you and I connected in 2012. So we're com- we're coming up on our six year anniversary. Um, so over those six years, I've learned so much. I've just really, you know, again, it's an honor to call you friend and to walk alongside of you in leadership roles. But share with me a little bit about what do you feel led us to connect? In your opinion, absolutely. So I love telling this story, by the way, because I I have the privilege of having cold called a recruiter. Um, I came to Cincinnati and it was a turnaround opportunity in a very large operation with Kellogg's. And the first thing that I started doing, I'm new to the area. So I started consistently asking people, I I want somebody who's going to help me connect with great talent. I want the recruiter who's not in it for the job, but for the people. I want the person who's going to do the right thing. And after the seventh, 10th, 11th time that everybody says, oh, if that's what you're looking for, it's Mike Sipple. And I started looking around and there was no connection to Mike Sippel. So I just called, right? And I remember leaving you a message that said, you have no idea who I am. This is what I do. I'd love to talk to you. And uh, you were gracious enough to uh, return the call. And you and Roddy Powell actually uh, visited the bakery in Cincy. You said, sure, absolutely. In a very Mike Sippel way, you said, yeah, absolutely. I'd, I'd love to meet you and understand what you're trying to do, right? And it was really that day we had a fantastic conversation. We toured the plant. And I think there was a very cool spark of who you are and how you understand talent and how you approach business interactions as people first that left me just with a spring in my step. And and I think that was the first spark. Unfortunately, Kellogg's then said, no, James, you can't do that there. We've got to do it all through corporate. And that further confirmed who Mike Sipple and Centennial are. Because I remember having the conversation with you of saying, hey, we were so excited that we were going to do this. Oops, sorry. And the automatic answer was, no worries, right? And the relationship continued. We met at a Disrupt HR 
uh, event after that, we started crossing paths. And every time we talked, it was more and more apparent how our passion for leadership was shared. And I think that was really the connection. So I'm, I'm blessed that that happened. And thank you for responding to the cold call because you could have just said, yeah, whatever. So thank you Absolutely. for doing that. Yeah, it, it's the tour I'll never forget because I didn't know if we were going to get hit by a tow motor or run over elves as we were walking through the Keebler, <laughs> uh, Keebler plant. Um, can you share with me a little bit about the experience of working in a legacy historical family business that was bought by a very large, successful global organization, food manufacturer? Can you share with a little bit about that journey? How did that legacy show up even when you got there? Because that had happened years before, I believe. Yes. So, so again, it was one of the most fantastic experiences that I've had. And I'm going to start way back. The story starts in the mid-1800s. A gentleman by the name of George Streetman comes from Germany to Cincy. Imagine that. Um, associates with his one of his best friends, uh, and they build Hurley and Streetman Baking Downtown. And it evolves from Hurley and Streetman to Streetman buys him out to Streetman and Sons. And they had two different bakeries downtown and started going national. And in 1940, they decided they're going to build a state-of-the-art facility and the national headquarters for Streetman Baking in Marymount, Ohio. And they built a huge plant, the coolest office I have ever had. So I was a plant manager who had a, a full wood paneling office with a fireplace in it. Uh, it was pretty interesting. <laughs> but it was built to be the office for Mr. Streetman at one point, right? One of my first questions when I walked into that office was, Joanne, so which one's the fake panel that has the wet bar behind it, right? Because it, 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 <laughs> right. it reeked of that's yeah. the way the business was done there. Um, the business evolved and Streetman sold off to Keebler in the 60s. So they had gotten to the size where Keebler would be uh, interested in them, right? So you've got a culture that started in the 1940s that was very well protected by the Streetman family. And then Keebler had a very deep sense of you keep things the way they are. There's a structure. There's a way very strong union environment. So we had three different unions that had been there from the beginning. Streetman actually made the decision to say in a point where racial tension was really strong in the United States, they elected to go with unions to make everything fair. They said, the arm that I will use to ensure that everything is fair and equitable is to have unions across my operations, which was a first for me right? It, it's not the, the normal path. So, so the union was very ingrained and, and there was a lot of pride. It evolves into 2001 where Kellogg's buys Keebler. And then that brings a whole new transformation to the, to the operation because Keebler and Kellogg were very different in, in and of themselves, right? They went from a very strong operational, get her done, down and dirty to big corporate America, what that looks like. So you have those three steps in time, if you will. And the amazing thing is when I left, there were six people in the 50 and older club. That means 50 years of service in that bakery or more. So, so you had that consistency within it, a very strong culture, Wow. right? So it was it was very interesting to walk in. So share with us a an example of what that long term fifty years of employment in one organization really was what you just referenced. Share with us kind of the the story that there's got to be a story in that of why and what would motivate someone to stay with an organization through multiple iterations of leadership and transition and change and so absolutely. Um, Bernice started working in the bakery the Monday after she graduated high school, right? Bernice is now the only person in Kellogg's in the 60s club. So she is now at 64 years of experience and contribution uh, to the business. She is the highest tenured Kellogg employee globally, period. 
Yeah, 60 years is incredible with and, one organization. And when you talk to her, there's there's two people that were my favorite stories in, in that place. And there were f- several hundreds of them, right? But Bernice and Jean, Jean was, was really a rookie, right? She, when I left, had only been there 53 years. Um, but they saw the transformation from when they saw Mr. Streetman walk the floor and they had talked to Mr. Streetman directly, right? And and they knew what it was like. And what they would tell you is it had always been a very hard run business. They were all about the efficiency, the growing the business, the but they paid better than anybody else. And they were very committed to both their employees and to bringing in the families of their employees. One of the things that changed when Kellogg came in is you put in a no nepotism uh, clause as Kellogg would have, and you lose what Keebler and Streetman had had as one of their major recruiting tools. So you had three and sometimes four generations in the plant. And what they told you when you talked to people about it, you said, but, but wait a minute, this, isn't this a little bit backwards? You'd say, of course not, James. He said, you want to have my best interest in training an employee and keeping them in the straight and narrow? Let me bring in my son, my cousin. My You won't have to worry about that person. We'll take care of it. And we'll take care of it because it's my reputation and because I care about that employee because they're my family. I'm, I'm going to slap them on, on the backside of the head before I let them fail, right? And that was something that was deeply rooted in in the organization and that Truly, I, I think it's a shame that we had lost a little bit with Kellogg's, right? Because it, it didn't happen uh, that way. Again, you've got to go through a very set process that you have to go through HR in Battle Creek and, and, and you lose that connection. The, the other part that was fantastic was Bernice drove a fork truck. She would swim four times a week. She would come into work. She would normally do overtime during a week. And the other part that she told you is, you have no idea the sense of pride that was built in this place. And and when you've been working for 60 some years and you're coming in even on Sundays, one of my favorite stories about Bernice is, I'm a new plant manager, so I'm going in on every shift, on every day, right? You're, you're getting to know people and how the plant operates in different days. And it's a January morning, Sunday, right? And shifts started at seven. So I would walk in at about 6.30, and just loiter in the cafeteria because you'd get the people that are coming out and the people who are coming in. And, and, and suddenly somebody comes in and they're all bundled up, right? It's cold. And, and I see them and I open the door and I'm like, hey, good morning. And she takes the scarf off and it's Bernice, highest tenured employee in a union plant, doesn't have to work overtime and definitely not Sunday, right? So I'm like, Bernice, how you doing? And she says, you look surprised. And I said, I am a little bit. I mean, Sunday's not the preferred shift. And with a twinkle in her eye, she smiles at me and she says, when the one who should be surprised, James, is me. And smiles at me and just walks by. So, so she had that passion, right? And Bernice and Jean told you the, the strong family commitment and and engagement that they felt toward the place. Some very impressive stories about how the culture had changed, right? They they lived through cultural and civil transformations in the US that the bakery was a microcosm of, right? And they told you very impactful stories of Jean was the first African-American employee that was allowed to touch product because when they started, they couldn't, right? You You don't touch food. And they told you about the first time that they built locker rooms that were shared. And they told you about when they actually made break times the same because break time used to be separate so that people could be segregated. And you think that those things happen in the deep south in the 20s. No, this is 1950, 1960, right here. It, it was a humbling and enriching experience to be able to lead an organization where you've got people who have lived through those experiences and who are willing to share them with you. So yes, a very, a very, very powerful experience. That's incredible for both of those two. Fifty-three year anniversary and sixty-four. You said yes. Bernie's been there sixty-four years. Wow. And the fact that you, as a leader, and hopefully many learned from that, the lessons learned is you took the time to get to know them, 
and to honor them and to understand them and to learn from them. And they took the time and had the patience. They could have told you, boss, I'm working. Exactly. Right? They took the time to teach you some life lessons Yes. along the journey and along the way. Is there Was there some type of town hall structure, meeting structure, relationship building structure where you introduce the new individuals coming in to the individuals who have been there 40, 50, 60 years? What did you do to bring those groups of generations together? So there were two things that happened. First off, uh, we had regular monthly meetings with every shift uh, where we announced who was coming in, who was going out. And then there was a very well-developed onboarding process where actually one of the things that we changed is there used to be a union um, training program and then the Kellogg's training program. And we brought HR and the union together and said, spend one, two, three, five days, and it landed up being four days, where you walk the employees through everything, right? And you give them the perspective of why. And HR would bring people from the 40s and 50s club in to give them that nugget, right, of saying, hey, this is who we are. And what was beautiful about it is we were very open about talking, this is the Kellogg Code of Conduct Manual, blah, 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 what we expect. Yes, we are a union facility, and your union leaders are going to be in the same room telling you what we're going to be doing, right, to, to make sure that we're together. So so it was, and, and, you, and you bring up something that was a constant challenge, right? We had three and even four generations, which meant there were very different ways of seeing work. And a lot of what we had to do was bridge that part of saying, Bernice would say these newbies who don't want to work, the people who had just come in would say these people who don't want to retire and are just taking our jobs, right? Instead of saying, wow, look at the pride in work that there is. And and you spent a lot of time working through those differences. I wish I could say that we managed to work through them all, but not even close. It was it was a very interesting dynamic there. Yeah, great life and leadership lessons. Yes, there were. So we had an opportunity in 2016 to lead an incredible search for growing one of the world's most coolest and fastest growing companies in the confection space, a place that makes life sweeter, a place that's committed to committee, uh, communities, consumers, people in our world. And um, I remember listening to the executive team, to the CEO and head of HR share their ultimate desires, goals, and outcomes, and uh, thinking through the mental Rolodex of SIPL and Centennial, and um, that led us to a conversation. Um, can you walk us through a little bit about the experience of going from an organization that you were leading, that you were in, in charge of, to evaluating what's next, knowing that you don't want to relocate, right? There's many listeners that have probably had that exact same experience where they've had to really think through personal, professional priorities that don't always align, but you have to find some alignment there to lead well in those spaces. And what that evaluation looked like, um, could you walk us through some of that? Absolutely. So this was the example where where I found out, right, the rubber meets the road example with Centennial. You and I had now built a relationship. We had crossed paths several times. I got Mike Sipple and I loved what Mike Sipple brought to the table. And you told me about Centennial and I saw Centennial operate in a very consistent way with what you spoke from the outside. As we went through the process with Perfetti, it was impressive to hear the conversations and the questions. I, I had never gone through those conversations with a recruiter before. The level of depth of saying does your character fit the organization? Is where you're wanting to go fitting with the organization? And you and Becky took really detailed care in making sure that you were really getting to my motivations. I've been through the process with recruiters before where the conversation is about how can we make you pitch your story right so we land this, right? And here it really was, we're going to make sure that that what we think needs to fit and those desires and those drives that you heard from the executive team at, at Perfetti are really matching with, with what you're telling me you want to do and where you want to go, right? And as we started talking, my personal story came out as I'm at a point where 
I definitely want to stay in the community because of my family and because it's a community that I want to grow in and make a difference in. The second part was I'm, I'm done with this huge corporation part, right? The, the let's do everything for the quarter and it's all about a stock ticker. And I, I had gotten to that point in my career where, where that wasn't making sense, right? And I think there was very good care taken into saying, huh, the set of skills and the approach that you have not only are things that Perfetti really needs in the journey they're on, but that are really going to fit with what you want to do, right? I love telling this story. It's humbling, and it speaks to the care that you take in your business as well, Mike. But you introduced Mehmet Yuksek, our North America CEO, and I three, three and a half years before that search, right? And I'm so smart, this is the humbling part, where when the search came to fruition and it was, yep, James has the pleasure and the privilege of being a part of Perfetti, I, I told you, you know, it's really funny, Mike. I mean, the odds, right? You introduced Mehmet and, and as I'm telling you, I just see the, oh my God, your dull face that you're giving me, right? <laughs> and it just clicked and it was, wow. Right. And again, I think that's why I got those references about you. It's you're you're not in for the short term. You're not in for the, hey, let's turn somebody, get a commission, go on to the next one. It's really painstaking care of is the culture, is the chemistry, are the paths of the organization and the individual really aligned? And then it just will fit in. Maybe not today, maybe three and a half years from now. Right. But that was impressive. And I've told you before, and I need to thank you again. Uh, it's going to be two years, May 16th. It has been a privilege and a true blast to be with Perfetti, the growth curve that the company is on, and really the capability development that was needed is something that's just been very exciting as we talked about. What motivates me? Growth. And I've, I've been given the privilege of saying, we want to grow our organization. We want to grow our people. We want to grow our systems. And James, can you come in and help? It's, it's been a blast. And I get to take airheads to my kids at night. It's just, a, it's fantastic. So I, that was going to be my next follow-up question. What is it like going home and telling your wife, and more importantly, in this case, your children, that you're leaving a cookies and cracker plant? <laughs> so that's one of my favorite stories. Um, we had a discussion about where we're going to go, right? And should we move? Should we not? And it was beautiful because at that point, our kids were 11 and 9, right on the cusp of bringing them into family conversations like that. And why would we move? And why wouldn't we? And what does a career look like? And it's really interesting to hear their, their perspective, right? Um, we get to the point where we say, this is the right move. So the four of us sit down again. And Paola says, hey, kids, dad has something that he's going to share with us. And I said, I've come to the point where I'm, I'm going to leave Kellogg's. One of the funniest and one of the proudest moments in my father leader career, the funniest is my daughter starts crying. She is one of the most Kellogg branded people at that point that you can imagine. She, she starts crying. And Paola, being as wise as she is, says, hold, just ask where he's going. So well, I'm going to go make airheads and mentos. Literally wipes tears from under each eye and goes, oh, that's fine. <laughs> right? And, and I, I have now found that having pre-market candy is, is a hot commodity for an elementary school or middle school uh, student. So right. they can bring stuff before it's out there. So very funny story there. And the proudest is my son is all somber. And I'm like, okay, the candy part didn't get to him. Right? And I'm like, what, what's the matter, bud? And he says, but, but what about your people? And, and I even choke up right now and I say there's two things that are beautiful about that, right? He's listening to that point. He's an 11-year-old who's, who's getting that. But the other part is to be able to transmit that, right? And I'm, I'm very proud to say, hey, look, I've, I've done some really great things in my career. But at the end of the day, I, I do it because it's fun to work with people and to grow with people. And, and maybe HR tells you that in a, in a card that they give you, right? Oh, it's awesome how you lead our people. When an 11-year-old gets it like that, it's, it's exciting. So, so it was a good transition, but they're, they're quite happy with the transition. My wife says that it's the most horrible thing I've done. She says, first of all, you already had the cool part. I get to do pickups, homeworks, 
assignments with them, and then you come home at night and be fun dad, right? It's not fair to start Thank with. Thank you, Paula, for all you do. <laughs> now you get to be fun dad with a basket full of candy every time you come in the door. She says, it's, 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 it's just not fair. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I remember, James, one of the conversations we had probably back in 2013 was this burning desire inside of you to help others in the community. And one of those discussions looked like, where do I get involved? Here's my passions. Here's my interest. You know, I know people here, but I don't know as many people as I need to. And the courage and the humbleness you had as a leader to be able to say that to myself and probably others as you were seeking your journey of who to connect with outside the four walls, right? Who to, where can I serve? Where can I bring my passions and make an impact on the community where I love, work, live, and play? Um, would you share with us a little bit about that journey? What did you learn from being on that journey? And um and what are you continuing today to do in the community abroad? So Procter & Gamble, me, Johnson, Kellogg's. Privileged to have had a fruitful career with huge organizations. They are so huge that you never see the borders. And that was, that was the learning that brought me there. You're, you're in the four walls. You're in your bubble. And oh, by the way, that's where they want you, right? They, they would prefer you're not distracted at many times and that you're, you're in there. Um, and as I started maturing a little bit, you start thinking of the blessed and privileged position that you're in because you've had a fruitful career with those organizations and how can I help? And when we were in Indiana, I stumbled a couple of times and tried and failed miserably uh, to, to reach outside of the walls, right? So as I came here, I realized that again, and I, I appreciate the way that you put it, Mike, because I realized I couldn't do it. I didn't know how to. I have many skills, and that was one that was non-existent. So I started reaching out to people like yourself and saying, hey, I, I want to do this, and I have no idea where to even start, right? And you realize two things. It's a lot easier than you think. And second, it's about having the conversations. So you made some introductions, and throughout the community and touch points that I had, introductions started happening to conversations that, as it normally happens, at the beginning, you couldn't put two and two together, but then they lead you to meet people and understand which organizations might help you better and who you might be able to help and where that connection and chemistry is. And I started stumbling onto opportunities that I had never thought of, right? And today, with different vectors like yourself, I have the privilege of sitting on the board for Prospanica, so trying to open up channels and avenues for first Hispanic challenge, uh, Hispanic talent, but we have really focused that on diversity, right? And going up to the point of meeting Mary Stagman and the fantastic work that the Chamber's doing on diversity and how can we help there. Um, that board led to a connection with St. Vincent de Paul, and I did not know the organization, right? And when you start seeing the impact on food store and personal services for people who don't have the means, the pharmacy for St. Vincent is the largest not-for-profit pharmacy in the state of Ohio, mm -hmm. right? And you, you think of if you don't have a job and you don't have the means and you have a medical condition, that's a problem, right? And right now, we just kicked off a campaign. There's a $12 million fundraising uh, effort for a new facility on the west side, and it's been kicked off. Eight of the $12 million are already accounted for at kickoff, and you start seeing the plans of what St. Vincent is doing, and it's impressive, right? Um, sitting on the superintendent's board for Marymount, which is where we live, and being able to understand education and being able to contribute to where that direction is going. And it's amazing. It's like a snowball. At the beginning, it was so hard and I didn't even know where to start. And now, obviously, one conversation leads to another and leads to another connection. And suddenly, and you know this, right? And, and we were talking with Chris at the beginning. I don't know how you have the eight days in your week that you do for everything that you're involved with. But you start getting into that cycle of 
one conversation leads to another and hey, I want to help here as well. Right. And more and more, I hope that I can continue to build that muscle. So much intersection. I, you know, in the, in the seat that we sit in the talent space and the executive leadership space and the consulting space and succession planning, leaders hit a wall. Usually there's some point in your career where you recognize, and you mentioned this earlier, this reflection of there's more to me than what I'm doing and there's more to life than what we're doing and how do we do more, right? And sometimes those are professional pivots. Those are professional career changes where someone says, oh, I'm so nervous. I've never been out of this environment. And I go and I start meeting people. And now I'm learning that I was, I meet people, I can serve people. And I'm learning about new people and new organizations and in new ways. Then typically when you land after that profound experience in your next career path, you start paying it forward, bringing it into your own next company encouraging your employees to be more involved in the community, encouraging your friends and mentors, and then people around you start sending people to you because of your journey. And it's just another level of fulfillment. I have so many leaders share with me and our team experiences too, but look at me in the eyes and said, I'm grateful for the time of transition. You know, I was never, I never took time to pause and you know, I've even had some leaders, I'm one in particular, say, I feel like I need to go back and apologize because it was always about my career. It wasn't about what I could do um, and how I could bring an impact. And, you know, we talk a little bit and you mentioned your children, your children watch you, right? Our children watch you, the people around you, your neighbors watch you and how you serve or how you don't serve or how you act and how you don't act. And that's what, you know, leadership shows up when the leader walks out of the room. And it's such a big proponent of this. So I have had the distinct pleasure, James, of checking your references, which I uh, <laughs> thought would be great to throw out. Um, you know, I remember speaking to an individual who was very senior to you and you worked on his team. And his comment was, the one thing that I will tell you about James is when I was afraid to have the conversation that needed to be had, I would just throw it to James. And I didn't always tell him what I was doing. But there were times where I was fearful to have a crucial conversation with person or people. And I knew James wasn't fearful to have crucial, important conversations with people. And his comment was, I learned in my fear of people and fear of just really tough, uncomfortable situations that James was the leader that I could say, hey, James, do you want to take this one? And you would say, yeah, sure. It needs to happen right? Um, when he said that, you know, you could hear the emotion reflection in his voice. And I talk, I say, um, there's a quote that I always put out that you can learn a lot about one's character by checking their references. And, um, and James, I, you know, the conversations that you've had along your journey, hopefully this is encouragement to you to continue doing what you're doing, right? Because it's so important and people around you experience you and your enthusiasm, and drive and motivation. It makes others better, right? Um, so one of the, so thank you for that. Thank you for being a leader. Thank you for being a person and a friend who leads that way. Um, so Disrupt HR, here's a operations executive supply chain, global supply chain leader who got the bug and the itch to join in a conversation put on by Disrupt HR. Um, I remember the first one. I was at the first one where you spoke on, on um, so you've had three now speeches. Um, you've also emceed twice. So you're in, you're sold out for disrupting HR, <laughs> which is wonderful. Can you walk us through that journey a little bit? Uh, what's been your experience? What were the fears that went into your mind, if any, in the first time you stepped on stage and walk us through those three speeches? So I'll start with the why disrupt HR, right? And it starts with, we had the conversation. I, I love growing organizations and growing them through people. I also think that we have gotten to the point where HR has become a rule book and a norm setting department, not a superhero engaging and promoting department. And, and we've done it to ourselves, right? It's it's maybe a cultural and maybe a legal fear that we've done it. So So I have that in the back of my mind. Out comes the first Disrupt HR, 
right? And they're saying, we love people. We think that organizations are great about, we think that organizations are great because of people. And we think that we're doing a very crappy job as HR of engaging and empowering them. I'm sold, right? So I looked at the background and I can now tell you, right, four events later and they have now gone to over a hundred cities. They have done a beautiful job. At the beginning, I didn't know this, but I now know that I love Disrupt HR because of who Disrupt HR is, right? And Jennifer McClure and Chris Ostick and Steve Brown are absolutely the people who would kindle something like that. And emceeing, I gave uh, Jennifer kudos the last time in saying, I'm, I'm impressed by the courage that they had to say, we are HR and, and we're going to break it up because it needs to be done and it needs to be reconstructed, right? So, so I sent in a piece and I said, I'm going to talk about diversity and this is me. And oh, by the way, full disclosure, I have spent zero days in HR. Two days later, I, and I told my wife, I'm never going to get this, right? It would be a lot of fun. But two days later, I get a note from Chris saying, that's exactly what we're looking for. Can you and I have breakfast? And the forum was such that it truly was that. What they built is a very informal, you can say whatever, say whenever, whoever's got the right idea should be speaking here, right? I give them a hard time and I say, I really don't think that you wanted to do this international uh, disruption thing. You just wanted to fund a beer night at Rheingeist and get done with it, (laughs) which is what the first one was, right? And they did that. And four years later, they're in over 100 cities, they've done it internationally, all volunteer, all just for the passion of saying, we want to create a forum where we make HR better so our people can be better. Fantastic, right? So that happens the first time around. Obviously, put me in the second and the third, and now it's it's a running joke of, um, hey, could you MC? Absolutely. Hey, could you help with? Absolutely. And it's a fantastic uh, forum that they've built. So we just had the uh, last one Wednesday, sold out at the transept, and it was fantastic. Again, a a great area to catalyze a bunch of thoughts and get a lot of people from HR and outside of HR to to cross-pollinate and get those ideas going that that make us better. So what was, did you speak at the last one? I did. So what was your latest speech? What were you inspiring people to think differently about? So my pitch was precisely as I started uh, describing what I see as a problem in HR today, right? And it's how what we expect of HR has made HR naked and afraid, right? So you start an organization, and the reference for this is uh, Netflix wrote an HR manifesto, which anybody should go and read. It's a fantastic HR piece, very simplified. And their main tenet is when you start an organization, you start it with people who you implicitly trust and who you have no transactional barrier with, right? As your business grows, the complexity of the business grows and the amount of high performance, high trust people that you can get diminishes. At that point, high complexity, not as much trust, you have to put rules and regulations in place. And you go to the extreme of saying, HR, Everybody in this office must dress right, be completely PC, our EEOC numbers must be perfectly balanced, and please make sure you don't get me anywhere close to a lawsuit. Oh, by the way, now go be bold and fearless and get me great leaders and develop them in ways that you've never thought and have meaningful conversations with them. (laughs) I, I don't think so, right? So what are the things that we have to do as people leaders, and especially I pushed them on HR, right? And I... um. I had a slide there that actually had two emojis, one of a chicken and a pile of poop, and said, that's who we've become, right? <laughs> and we've gotten to be afraid of interacting with people and of pushing people and being leaders, and we need to go do it differently. So it was, it was, a, fun, it was a fun night. So we'll include in our show notes the link to disrupthr.co. Please. And uh, I know they just launched a new website. And, and it is fantastic. just the other day, I was looking at the calendar of events. We were unable to make the, the most recent one I was. Um, but all of the cities that same night yes. that this was happening, including some outside the U.S. Yep. Um, what, an, what an inspiring story for leaders to lead well and for people like yourself to come alongside and help 
and further support. We also, I know you wrote two articles, I believe leadership is about and leading is a laughing matter. What inspired you to write those and, and, uh, share with us a little bit about that. So two things. Um, I believe leadership is about, I, it's an exercise that PNG taught me, which is the best way that leaders can learn from leaders is writing a one pager that says, I believe that leadership is about, right? So I, I believe leadership is about growing people. And I believe that leadership is about trust. And when you start writing that and you start exchanging that page with different people, it is a beautiful way to learn oh, I had never thought of leadership that way. Or, hey, James, you might say that that's what you believe leadership is. And, and I've had some very con candid conversations with people who have told me, I, I, I love what you wrote, but let me tell you how you come across. Ouch, mm -hmm. right? But it, it helps you grow. So that, that inspired me to, to write that one. And then leading is a laughing matter. I told you at the very beginning, right? It's my mom and dad gave me a beautiful balance of the intellectual drive and the people side. And one of the things that my mother taught me was to laugh. And what I have seen is what you want for a high-performing organization is people to be fully engaged, to be fully trusting, and to be completely fearless in what they do. And tension and pressure don't facilitate that. And the best thing you can do is to keep a light mood, right? I... It was the first engineering project that I was doing, three o'clock in the morning. We had to start up at seven. I'm frantic all over the place. And my boss walks in, three o'clock in the morning, and pulls me aside and says, so, so if a ship is going under, and I'm like, where's he going with this, right? Who do you think everybody's going to look at? I said, the captain. And he said, and what do you think they want to see? Got it, sir. Right? And, and he taught me that one early on. And if you want to lead change and disrupt organizations and make them grow, you're going to push them through very challenging and uncomfortable times. And the best thing you can do is help them. So keeping a stable head and using humor, and I love using humor as a tool to keep people relaxed, even when it's a high stress situation, I found to be fantastic. So I wrote, leadership should be a laughing matter because of that. You know, the, so our vision of this Talent Magnet Institute podcast is help to reframe success and leadership, helping develop, further develop leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, and be a part of the type of conversation, the things that we heard that, what you just said of the, your leader at 3 a.m. that said, if the ship's sinking, who's everyone going to look at? Yep and basically reflect the message you're sending as a leader to all of your audience that's looking to you, you can further drive chaos and anxiety and emotion that's negative, or you can be the calm in the storm, help provide direction, help provide clarity, show them their work matters, and make this a success. Um, it's, it's great that you heard that. Uh, many look back and say, I wish I would have. But, um, you know, what a, what a message to be sent. And I can tell you the, the best compliment that I got on it. We were in a massive project in Evansville, Indiana, big delays, big regulatory challenges. And I'm having lunch with one of our project managers. And he says, can I ask you a very direct question, James? And I said, please, Joe, right? I, I, I would love it. And he says, I, I really have spent time thinking, and I don't know if you are completely ignorant of the amount of trouble we're in, or you don't care about your career. And I said, what do you mean? And he says, James, you should be freaking out. I would imagine you to be binge drinking by now. And I laughed and Joe was very early in his career and I had the pleasure of being able to give him the same counsel and say, I need you guys to not be stressed and bail us out. And the best that I can do for that is role model and keep calm. And, and that was a, a fantastic thing. And the beauty of it is Joe Bailey's still in Evansville, Indiana, and we still talk twice a year and keep in touch. So. So James, if there's one message that you hope leaders walk away from this conversation with. Absolutely. I'm, I'm going to overreach and I'm going to give you two because you sparked a, a question and a, a comment that I think we've got to make. So when we were talking about transitions, you talked about, hey, thanks, Paula, for all you do. So the first thing that I want to call out is a leader in my career. I, I was new to the organization. James, tell me a little bit about yourself. 
well, I was born and raised in Mexico. I've got two kids. I've got a fantastic wife. And he said, I knew that. It's the first time I see the guy. And I said, excuse me? He says, James, for somebody at your age to have had the career that you have had and have a, si- a sane family, you've got a bedrock behind you, right? And I think a lot of times when we as leaders talk about all the things we do, we're remiss to talk about all the enablers that we get. So yes, when you said thank you, Paula, for all you do, a complete understatement. And I know that you're in the same situation. So, so I wanted to make sure to call that one out. But if there's one thing about leadership that I would want people to take away is ask yourself why you really want to lead. And you have to be very honest, right? Do you want to lead because you want to get to be CEO? And that's fine, right? But be honest about it. The biggest learning that I've had in my life and and one of the biggest ahas was to realize, wait a minute, there's a lot more that I can do if I reframe why I'm doing this. And I'm not doing it because I want to be CEO or VP because guess what? At the end of your career, that title and that office are going to go away. The real reason to lead is the impact that you leave in people and the memories that you're going to leave in yourself and in them at the end of your career. And, And if you can get to the point where you're leading, a friend and coworker in Michigan taught me this phrase, and I love it. He said, James, when you're 92 and toothless, rocking on a back porch somewhere, what do you want to remember? And and I think if you ask yourself that question and say, I want to lead in a way that when I'm 92 and looking at the sunset, I can smile and say, I, I built, I helped people. And I can tell you there's a couple people sitting in rocking chairs saying, I'm glad that I crossed paths with James as a leader. That would be fantastic. And I think if you reframe that, why am I doing it? It's the best thing you can do for yourself as a leader. Mm, that's wonderful, James. Thank you so much for being here and joining us today and for this conversation. I hope that our listeners enjoyed the dialogue, the openness, the transparency, the authenticity, and these these key simple points to think about in your life, thanking your enablers, those that help you get to where you are. And I want to lead in a way that dot, dot, dot. James, thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners. We look forward to our next conversation. Uh, Thank you for joining the Talent Magnet Institute podcast, helping you reframe success and leadership. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Talent Magnet Institute podcast. Make sure you subscribe so you never miss an episode and help spread the word by leaving a review. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is made possible by Janelle Spence and Christine Lewis of Centennial, Josh Chappelle and Adam Smith of Soundpress, Produced by Chris Medine of New Fidelity Studios and Audra Casino and Megan Doherty of One Stone Creative. Music written by DJ Corbett and Chris Medine. And myself, your host, Mike Sipple Jr. We are recorded in Greater Cincinnati, Ohio. We're supported by our listeners from all around the world. The Talent Magnet Institute podcast is part of the Talent Magnet Institute and Centennial. You can reach me on Twitter or LinkedIn at Mike Sipple Jr. Find us in your favorite podcast app, or you can visit us online at talentmagnetinstitutepodcast.com to subscribe, leave a review, and share with a colleague. Thank you for joining us on the journey of developing leaders to succeed in relationships, work, community, and life, reframing success in leadership.